Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, as we come to uh, yet another uh, parable in the series on the parables that I have been going through. It's found at the conclusion of what is familiarly known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Last week we looked at uh, somewhat of an introductory um, passage, verses 21 to 23. We want to finish that out in verses 24 to 27 today, but we'll read it in its entirety, verse 24 through 27, right after we ask for God's blessing upon the hearing of his word. So let's pray. Father, it is in your light that we see light, and we need that light to be a light unto our steps. Not only do we live in a dark world, but despite the fact that you have opened your eyes to see the glories of the gospel, we have sin that remains that needs to be enlightened, addressed, clarified. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come today and that you would give us uh, an understanding in your word as we hear it preached and we ask it in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. So Matthew chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Therefore, missing in the English, therefore, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Four points to the sermon this morning on these two foundations. First of all, the proposition... Secondly, the problem. Thirdly, the proper response Jesus calls for. And fourthly, a promise which he provides for your encouragement. So a proposition, a problem, a proper response, and a promise. John Stott, one of my famous commentators, particularly on this portion of Scripture, says, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read and that the church is a dangerous society to join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ, and in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. As a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, therefore, lays upon us the serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know and what we say is translated into what we do. That's the proposition that Jesus presents here. It is simply that according to Jesus, obedience to him is absolutely necessary. Obedience to Jesus' words, his teaching, is 
indispensable. Look at the text to confirm this. Uh, verse uh, 21, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is the one who will go to heaven. Verse 23, workers of lawlessness, those who do not obey God's word, are those who will not go to heaven. Or in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It is unquestionable, it is indisputable, as well as it is indispensable, that obedience to Jesus Christ's words and teaching is absolutely necessary. No holiness, no heaven. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Far too often a deprecated, overlooked, and dispensed with teaching. But according to Jesus, absolutely necessary. Absolutely indispensable. Let's be clear. Jesus is not talking about perfect obedience. He's not talking about sinless obedience. He's, talking about, he's not talking about never failing, never falling. All right? We made that clear last week. All right? He's not talking about salvation because of obedience. All right? We are those who believe in the solas of the Protestant Reformation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the scriptures alone. Let's affirm that. Let's get our gospel grammar absolutely straight and correct, lest there be any misunderstanding. When Jesus Christ talks about obedience, it's not in order to be made right with God. It's because one has already been made right with God by grace through believing in him. We would have to review the entirety of the Sermon Mount, of the Mount to establish that. But throughout the entirety of the Sermon Mount, Jesus' indispensable teaching is he requires his disciples, those who are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, saved, are to demonstrate the reality of that faith, the reality of the grace, grace worked in them, the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in their heart, making them new creations, by obediently following his teaching. It's indisputable. The Protestant reformers were fond of putting it this way. It's faith alone that saves. But the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by faith-filled, gospel-motivated, grace-inspired obedience. An analogy, if you seem to uh, find that difficult to understand, is biological. The eye alone sees, all right? That is, my hand doesn't have vision, my foot doesn't have vision, all right? The eye alone is the instrument of the body that can see. But the eye, apart from the body, cannot see. If I were to, <coughs> excuse me, if I were to pluck my eye out, it would not be able to see. So when we say the eye alone sees, 
We're not saying if you came across a human eye in a glass filled with formaldehyde, it would be able to see you and say, hey, how are you? No. It's the eye alone sees, but only because it's part of the body. So also, it's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. So let's be clear on that at the outset. All right? Jesus here... <clears throat> requires obedience, faith-filled, grace-motivated, Holy Spirit moved as an indispensable requirement of discipleship in his church and in his kingdom. If you're still vague on that, I refer you to the Heidelberg Catechism, which we confess uh, in this church as something we believe the scriptures teach, as in our previous service I highlighted for you, the Heidelberg Catechism follows the outline of the book of Romans. Sin, chapters 1 through 3. Salvation, chapters 3 through 11. Service, chapters 12, 12 through 16. You'll remember chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, by the mercies of God, everything in the gospel that I've explained and applied to you in chapters 3 through 11, therefore, by the mercies of God, right, I call you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And then Paul explains and spells out what that means in the remaining chapters. That's the response to God's grace. The Ten Commandments are the majority of what we find in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's eminently biblical. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll recognize that when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people in Exodus chapter 20, he's not saying, hey, live like this and maybe you'll make it. He doesn't give them the Ten Commandments and say, try your best and I'll, I'll, I grade on a curve, you know, as long as you try your best. No. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Pure grace. You didn't do anything to earn that. You didn't do anything to merit that. Purely because of my sovereign, gracious initiative, I looked down upon you in your mercy and your suffering, and I took pity on you, and I brought you out. Therefore, because I have done that for you, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship me by idols. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall keep my Sabbath day holy. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. You see, it's a response to grace. It's all that Jesus is saying here. But let's be clear about the proposition that obedience in the Christian life for a disciple of Jesus Christ, absolutely indispensable. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, sadly, almost ever since Jesus spoke these words, there have been Christians and Christian teachers who deny what Jesus teaches. These have earned the label antinomians. Anti-against Nomos, the Greek word for law, antinomian. They said, no, 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 if we're saved by grace, then there's no law. That's works. There are three categories of Christians and teachers which promote this serious, grievous mistake today. There are those 
in broad evangelicalism in North American Christianity, largely seen in those who are um, evolved in evangelism. That is, believe. Believe the gospel and you'll be saved. And immediately, more often than not, people are given assurance of eternal security. Pray this prayer and you'll be saved. One of my favorite Christian artists, if you've been here any while, you know I love Keith Green. I just love him. All right? I love his music. It's so inspirational. His heart and passion for the Lord inspires me. But theologically, he was off base. If you know one of the lyrics of his song, he says, Believe just this once, and you'll be saved. Doesn't matter whether you believe tomorrow. Doesn't matter whether you'll still be believing in a year or five years or ten. Believe just this once, and you'll be saved. Pray this prayer, the sinner's prayer, and you'll be saved. Walk the aisle in the invitation system, and we'll tell you that your sins are forgiven. You have the assurance of eternal life. Doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what you do, you can never lose that salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. Believe. Wrong. Wrong. This manifested itself into quite a controversy a number of years ago, remnants of which are still with us today, which is why I mention it. John MacArthur, some probably 30 years ago, was involved. If you've been around that long, you might know it, or you might still see vestiges of it today, in what was called the Lordship Controversy. That you can have Jesus as Savior without having Jesus as Lord. That is, you can believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins and to grant you eternal life, and that promise is shorn. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you'll be saved. But you don't need to have Jesus as Lord. What does it mean to have Jesus as Lord? It means to repent of your sins. It means to turn to Him in obedience. No, 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 that's works, such people were told. Zane Gray, Charles Ryrie, many others, largely coming out of dispensationalism in Dallas Theological Seminary, if you need to know. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or Jesus is not Lord at all. You do not come to Jesus on your terms. I'll take your forgiveness and your promise of eternal life, and maybe later I'll get serious about obeying you, following you, being faithful to you. And of course, a third category of Christian teachers today, those who draw a radical antithesis or dichotomy between the law and the gospel, and actually divide the entire Bible into either into law or gospel. You've heard me say this before, the law says do, the gospel says done. Hogwash. Oh, and please, if you think that's somewhat harsh, just look at the text. Is that what Jesus says? A grace works distinction. 
does not equal a law-gospel dichotomy. As with most things in the reform world, it's both and, not either or. Why is this important? You might think I'm up here, oh, Murphy's off on a theological rant again. No. Sound theology leads to sound living. You want a theological term? Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. When the Bible talks about orthodoxy, the term which it uses is healthy. It promotes health, spiritual life. When it talks about sin and false doctrine, the word is actually gangrene. Gangrene is a disease you don't see much. My mother had gangrene. Her extremities, her toes and her fingers began to lose circulation. And they began to snip them off to prevent it spreading to the rest of the body. The day before she died, she had gangrene in her leg that was so bad, I got the phone call, I had to come home from Michigan, they were going to amputate her leg in an attempt to save her life because the gangrene had spread. That's false doctrine. That's the term that's used in the Bible, gangrene. Can I give you an illustration of where this goes wrong? You may or may not have heard about it in the weeks gone by. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican from South Carolina, addressed a prayer breakfast hosted by U.S. Senator Tim Scott, also from South Carolina. She made headlines because Mace, who lives with her boyfriend, attempted a dose of humor by blithely noting that she rebuffed her boyfriend's sexual advances that morning because otherwise she would have been late for the prayer breakfast. The inference was obvious. Regular non-marital sex was common for Mace with her live-in boyfriend. But that morning, attendance at the prayer breakfast took precedence, precedence over sex. That's where this teaching leads. If you've been here any amount of time, you know that I am not interested, and neither is the Bible interested, in crossing T's and dotting I's in a nice museum-worthy uh, uh, display of perfect doctrinal truth. The Bible is interested, and I, as the pastor and shepherd of your souls, responsible for guiding you on to holiness and to heaven, am interested in true teaching because it produces right living. And bad teaching produces bad living. There are very practical negative consequences to antinomian thinking. Can I tell you a couple of more? A poor witness by those who say that they don't do, who go to church but don't put God's word into practice who call themselves Christians, but they don't live like Christians. I met somebody for coffee this uh, one morning this past week, 
and was telling me about his sister who forsook the faith and left the church because she saw so many people in the church who liked to look like Christians on Sunday, but who were drinking, drugging, and sleeping around Monday to Saturday. That's a poor witness. This isn't being called a hypocrite because you fell short or you failed in some particular occasion or instance. This is a lifestyle that is characterized by disregard of and disobedience to the Word of God. And everybody sees it. You know what I tell hypocrites? People say, we're out in the street evangelizing. Oh, I don't want to go to church full of hypocrites. You know what I say? Yeah, come on down. There's room for one more. <laughs> but all joking aside, Hypocrisy can be devastating to the witness of a Christian, to a watching world, who's not just waiting for you to slip up once or fall short, as we all do, but for somebody to say they're one thing and live like another thing. That's totally different. Another example. False assurance. I have no infallible insight into the heart of Nancy Mace or her soul, and I certainly would not be one to necessarily pass judgment except on her conduct and behavior, which is unacceptable. However, I can tell you that I've run into far too many people who profess Christ but very obviously, by the way they live, do not possess Christ. And false assurance? What's the problem with false assurance? First of all, it deceives those who are non-Christians. Giving somebody infallible assurance of eternal life and forgiveness of sins because they prayed a prayer, or because they walked an aisle, or because they responded to some revival meeting without any change of life, without any repentance, without any demonstrable consequence of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in their life, deceives them. Look at the text, verse 23. They are those who will hear from Jesus. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but I have no interest in promoting that. Secondly, it distorts people who are really Christians. People who do sincerely believe, people who sincerely trusting in Jesus Christ, people who have turned from sin to Jesus Christ, turned from disobedience, turned to following the Lord faithfully. To think that somehow there's a second stage in the Christian life where you can get serious about being a Christian, where you can have Jesus as Lord, but now you just have him as Savior. It deceives non-Christians, it distorts things for Christians. And thirdly, and most seriously, it disgraces God. It disgraces God. 
for those who profess Christ, but actually in reality do not possess him. This is not Murphy's theological rant or some ivory tower attempt to dot I's and cross T's. Please, I hope you believe me. This is my heart as a pastor, an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, entrusted with the never-dying souls of never-dying men and women to guide you on to holiness and to heaven. And if there's no holiness, there's no heaven. What's the proper response? Allow me to use John Stott again. On our text, he says, Jesus emphasizes with great solemnity that on a a thorough-growing obedience, our eternal destiny depends. In this respect, the two final paragraphs of the sermon are very similar. Both contrast the wrong and the right responses to Christ's teaching. Both show that neutrality is impossible and that a definite decision has to be made. Both stress that nothing can take the place of an active, practical obedience. And both teach that the issue of life and death on the day of judgment will be determined by our moral response to Christ and his teaching in this life. What is the proper response? is verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them would be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's the proper response? Hear Jesus' teaching and do it. What does it look like? This isn't Nike theology, just do it. What does it look like to do it? It means that if you hear Jesus today, if you hear his voice, turn to him, trust in him, believe him, that he alone can save you from the penalty for your sins. Look, look at the text. Look at the text. On that day, verse 22, what's he talking about? Day of judgment. You may be sitting here this morning, you may be in my hearing this morning and say, ah, I don't believe there's a day of judgment. <laughs> All right, you know, you may, you may believe it's not sunshine out too. It doesn't make it so. There's a judgment day. Everyone will have to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Everyone. And he's the one who alone In the entirety of human history, the only human being fully human, fully God, who obeyed God perfectly and satisfied God's requirement to perfect obedience. And he is the only one who took the sins of his people on himself and paid the penalty for sin by going and being crucified on the cross in their place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And he alone is the Savior. He alone is the one who can forgive you. He alone is the one who can gain you entrance into Jesus' life.
into eternal life. So what does it mean to do it? It means to hear him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Look to him. Trust in him. Believe him. Faith. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all I take him. Jesus, I know that you alone are my lifeline to heaven. You alone are the one who, is, who can give me hope for eternity. What does it mean to do it? It means to do that and then follow his teaching. Live according to the words that proceed from the mouth of God. Put into practice what he says. Jesus is teaching your whole life on Judgment Day will be judged on how you respond to him and to his words. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Contrast adversatively, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And with crashing, emphatic exclamation, Jesus concludes his sermon with these words, and great was the fall of it. Matthew Henry, whom many of us know as a beloved commentator, from another century says this, to do Christ's saying is conscientiously to abstain from the sins that he forbids and to perform the duties that he requires. Our thoughts and affections, our words and actions, the temper of our minds, the tenor of our lives must be conformable to the gospel of Christ. That is the doing he requires. All the sayings of Christ, not only the laws he has enacted, but the truths he has revealed must be done by us. They are a light not only to our eyes, but to our feet, and are designed not only to inform our judgments, but to reform our hearts and lives. Nor do we indeed believe them if we do not live up to them. It's a serious matter, right? What did Stott say? The Bible is a dangerous book to read. And the church was a dangerous society to join. But let's turn from the gravity and the seriousness of what Jesus here teaches to not neglect the fact that he also includes a promise. For you see, Jesus is a loving Lord. How often when you read in the gospel accounts does Jesus sweeten his teaching, as it were, with an incentive? Right? Jesus is Lord, as I've tried to emphasize throughout the course of this sermon, right? If Jesus says jump, our response should be how high? But he doesn't like that. He's a loving Lord. 
He says, I want what's best for you. I want, I want you to, as we read in 1 John chapter 4, for our assurance of pardon, that, that our joy may be complete. I'm not a cosmic killjoy. I love you. And here, let me sweeten the pot. Let me, let me provide for you an additional incentive and motivation to follow me in faithfulness. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, here's the promise, don't miss it, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you build your life on his words, what you do in this world will last forever. Your building will endure. What you do that is founded upon Jesus Christ will continue forever. Your labor will not be lost. Your efforts to build Christian homes and Christian churches and to live as Christians in the marketplace and in your communities will not be in vain. Right now counts forever in Jesus Christ. Therefore, be encouraged, be energized, be diligent, build. As Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Amen. Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us increase our faith, overcome our unbelief, grant us grace in your Holy Spirit. We've heard Jesus speak. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and give to us that which is impossible in and of ourselves to follow in loving, grateful obedience. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen and amen.